Well, it's such a pleasure to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from Anniston Bible Church. Uh, I hope that you know what a treasure your church is here. Um, and I hope that uh, the, this message will reinforce that encouragement in your heart to be aware of the treasure that God has given you in this local church, in Redeemer Church of Oxford, and that you'll be encouraged as he has prayed by, your, by the word of the Lord. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> and we're just looking at four verses here, verses 12 through 15. When I came in, um, it's not Andrew, it's Jordan asked me what the title of my message was. I had to think for just a moment um, because I hadn't actually given it a formal title, uh, but it is uh, the beauty and the order of the church, the beauty and order of Christ's church. So you know from your study of Thessalonians that as the church is waiting for Christ to return. She, she is longing for the coming of her Lord when all will be well. But until then, she is experiencing the, the tension, the enmity of the world, the, the temptations of the world, the attacks of the evil one as well, are coming on her. And so the church is in this tension between uh, the, the waiting for Christ to come and the joy of His kingdom being established and the blessing of the perfections of the new heavens and the new earth and all the things that will be brought about when Christ returns and He is King of kings and Lord of lords in a, a material and accomplished way. And the, the pains and sufferings and difficulties of this life until that time. And so how does the church maintain its character as it waits for Christ's return? And, and the answer to that, at least in part, is here in this passage. It, it is by maintaining the beauty and the order of the church. Let's read the passage together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. A wonderful passage, so intensely practical, and it certainly gives us lots to think about. Now, I, I want to uh, kind of outline the passage with a number of questions. And the first one is kind of introductory, and I'm going to write it up here. And that is simply the question, what is the church? 
We found this antique PowerPoint uh, that they're letting me use here. So, uh, But this is a very good question for us to think about. And it helps us to get a, a running start into this passage. In fact, everything this passage has to say is built on the foundation of God's answer, the Bible's answers, Paul's answer to this question, what is the church? I'm going to give you just uh, some basic uh, definitions here. First of all, I'll say that the church is God's covenant people. The church is God's covenant people. That is, they, they belong, we belong to the Lord by a covenant. That is the new covenant. We belong to the Lord through the new covenant. Now, that leads us to another question, not part of the outline, but the question of of what is a covenant? A covenant, very simply, is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. I'm not original with me. O. Palmer Robertson gave that definition, but it's short, and I think it's good. It is a bond in blood. It's in blood because it's a life or death situation, you see. And in our case, it is the blood of Christ. It is a bond between us and our God, a a eternal bond. We are bound to him, and he is bound to us. The very essence of the covenant is, I am your God, and you are my people. You see it over and over again throughout the Bible. I am your God, and you are my people. From the very beginnings of of the giving of the law and and all the way through, I'm speaking of the books of Moses until you get to Revelation, when you see the new heaven and the new earth, and, and I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the, the nature of the bond between us and the Lord. And so it is, we have a covenant relationship with the Lord. That is so powerful. Christ by His death has purchased you, Acts chapter 20, the church which God purchased with his own blood. Acts chapter 20 is the description that Paul gives of the church. It is the people redeemed, bought, purchased, brought to himself. And and God has gathered and is gathering a people for himself out of every tribe and nation and tongue. And he brings them to himself through the blood of Christ. It is through Christ that we have this relationship. And this, the nature of this relationship we're going to celebrate this morning in the Lord's Supper because it is the new covenant. And Jesus said the new, this is the new covenant in my blood which was shed for you. And so the church is God's covenant people, the people who who belong to the Lord. And there's a lot we could say about what the church is. But the church is a, a, a people who have a relationship with God and with one another. And that becomes a matter of outstanding importance in this passage. This passage is about relationships. And and I just point out to you, and I am sure I haven't heard the other sermons, but I just point out to you, if you look at verse 12, 
he says, and we urge you, brethren. I'm reading from the New King James. Perhaps yours says brothers. Some may say brothers and sisters. It's evident he means everyone in the church. He speaks of them as brothers. You notice it again in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brothers, brethren, speaking here of brothers and sisters, speaking of the whole body of Christ. If we look even further in this passage, uh, down verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Verse 26, greet all the brethren, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. And verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this Epistle be read to all the holy brethren. And so the church is a family. You see that? The church is a family. We have a, a, we're a brotherhood. God is our father by covenant through his son. We have been brought together as the family of God. God is our father. Christ is our savior, our Lord, our elder brother. And we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. Since God is our Father and Christ is our elder brother, by the Holy Spirit, you and I are joined together in one family. And and a family is a a mixture. That's a poor word. It's It's a dynamic of relationships with one another. And that's why what he has to say here is so important because he is speaking to the family of God who who have the assignment as they wait for Christ, who have the responsibility, the obligation as, as they endure testing and temptation to maintain the beauty and the order of the relationships that God has given in his church. And so that's, that's what this passage is about. So that leads us to the, the first question, really, the second question, but the first question that really comes up in this passage, which is how does Christ lead his church? How does Christ lead his church? Should have thought of course shorter questions. How does Christ lead his church? God the Father has ordained that Christ, Jesus Christ, his son, is the head of the church. He has given all authority into his hands. As our mediator, he fulfills the office of prophet, priest, and king. And as our king, he rules over all things for the sake of his people. He is our Lord. He is our head. As a body, he is our head. And so he exercises authority in the church. Christ is the head of the church. Now this is so important. You know, I, I once served in a church where um, I had, as I realized, a different philosophy of ministry than the senior pastor that I was serving under. And I was talking with him one day, and I said, well, we have to help people to understand that Christ is the head of the church. 
He said, well, he's not the head of this church. He says, he's the head of the church universal, but he's not the head of this church. This church, I'm the head. And I thought, we are in real trouble here, right? That's, that is a grave danger when we start talking that way. Listen, Christ is the head of this church. He is the head. So how does Christ exercise his authority? Well, he exercises his authority through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is, has been historically called the Vicar of Christ. That title was actually uh, robbed and stolen by uh, the Pope in Rome uh, thousands of years ago as he calls himself and the, the church has called him, the Roman Catholic Church has called him the Vicar of, of, of Christ upon the earth. But no, that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Vicar of Christ. He is the representative of Christ in, in the leadership and so how does the Holy Spirit exercise? The Spirit of Christ is in the church. The Spirit of Christ indwells every believer. How does the Spirit of Christ exercise the authority of Christ over the church? And the answer is he does so through the Word of God. The Spirit works through the Word. The Word of God is how the church is administrated. And how does the Spirit work through the Word to administrate the church? Well, he does so, does so through spiritual leaders. There are certain men who are called and gifted and then given to the church. They are actually, they, it's not only that they have gifts, but then they are given to the church. As, as a gift from Christ in order to exercise leadership. And they exercise this leadership through the ministry of the Word. By the ministry of the Word, these men, gifted and given by Christ, declare the will of Christ for His people. And they, they, they are sinners like us. They uh, have not been glorified. And so you must pray for your leadership. But we're thinking about how does Christ lead his church? And so the next two verses, verses, excuse me, the first two verses, verses 12 and 13, really give an understanding of this. So he says, And we urge you, brethren, we're, we're asking you, we're calling on you. They're, they're, you see the word there, we urge you, verse 12. And then in verse 14, we exhort you. Now, these are two different words, but at the same time, one, you know, to encourage the other, to, to make an appeal, to plead with, to ask very respectfully. But nevertheless, they carry that same tone. Uh, 50% of the words that Paul, verbs that he uses here are, are imperatives. He's given commands. But he, he's, he's pleading with believers that, that they would submit themselves. And he uses both of those words in chapter 4 and verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus. He uses both of them there. So they have the same, this passage has a tone of appeal. If you want to preserve the beauty and order of the church, listen to Paul's appeal. And so what does he appeal to them? He says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you 
and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and then be at peace among yourselves. So if we were to divide this passage, um, the thrust of it, the main part of it is his instruction that on the one hand, they should recognize their their leaders. Recognize those who labor among you. Recognize those who lead, those who are over you in the Lord. Recognize those who admonish you, okay? And so there's a, a recognition an acknowledgement. I think the King James says no. And, and that's the nature of this word, that you're to acknowledge and understand. So you're to know them, you're to recognize them. And the second part of it, esteem them very highly for their work's sake, in love. I left out that. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. So the thrust of this passage is is twofold for the congregation. That first of all, you you should recognize the God-given leaders among you. And then secondly, that you should esteem them very highly in love because of the work that they are doing. And so this, this is the nature of it. Let me come back to that in a moment. So then on the other side... Paul has given these very specific ways that you can recognize them, right? Who are they? It's it's not simply whoever puts himself forward. See, it's, it's not who approves himself. It's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but whom the Lord approves, whom the Lord commends. And so believers having the Spirit of Christ, having the Word of God in their hands, are able to discern the the spiritual leaders that God gives. They they are not those like Diotrephes who love the preeminence. (laughs) But there are plenty of people that love the spotlight. There are people who love authority. And, And listen, those are the people you don't want in leadership. It's easy to get people into leadership. It is hard to get them out. And so you want to very wisely identify who it is that God gifts and calls for leadership. And so this passage is a two-edged sword. On the one side, it's telling you that you should recognize them, and it's telling you to esteem them and to hold them in high regard and to love them. But on the other side, It is saying this is what you should look for. First of all, recognize those who labor among you. And I love that among you, over you, admonish you. It's evident that these are folks who take their relationship with the church very seriously. They're involved in the lives of people. They're not aloof. They are not hidden from sight. They don't come up out of the floor on Sundays and to speak ex cathedra to you and you listen to them and then they disappear. These are people who live among you and live with you, who walk with you in all that you go through. And he says you'll recognize them because they are hard working. 
It's the idea of someone who is, is perspiring, someone who's doing physical labor. And listen, spiritual care for God's people is some of the hardest work that can be done. It is, it is heart work, you see? And sometimes, sometimes a leader has to labor with a broken heart because his heart is breaking. Heartache is one of the heaviest burdens that leaders in God's church have because often there are things that are heartbreaking to them and they may not be able to say a word about it, but they carry that burden if they're faithful brothers. And so these individuals, you'll recognize them because of their hard work. And then you'll recognize them because they they take leadership. We believe in leadership. You know, we, we believe in the leadership of the Holy Spirit but we believe that the Spirit leads through, through the men that God raises up as leaders in the church. And so these men take the lead. They take initiative. And, and you can tell that the initiatives that they take tie in with the imperatives of God's Word. We, we should do this. We shouldn't do this because of what God's Word says. That we should do this. We shouldn't do this because of the glory of Christ, the glory of God. That is their concern. And so they, they take initiative in the church and they lead. And so you recognize they're over you in the Lord. And notice that in the Lord, isn't that an important prepositional phrase? Over you in the Lord. In other words, it is what we often say at Anniston Bible Church that the only authority that a leader possesses is the authority of God's word. I can't go around and tell people, now you shouldn't have this job and you should go do this and you should marry that person and you know uh, you can't do this and this is how much you should give and so forth. I can't do that because I don't have authority to do that. But I have authority to give all the commands of God to his people. And then I, I'm on safe ground, right? I'm speaking from a place of assurance and authority because it is God's authority in his word. That's what we can insist on. And so they, they take the lead. So you recognize them because they take the lead. You recognize them uh, because, what was the first one? What was it? They labor hard. And you recognize them because they admonish. Now, ooh. That's a big and tough word. You know, it means to put someone in mind, and and the the word has a negative context. It means that they are willing to have difficult conversations. What time am I supposed to finish, Phil? Okay. Um, so they're willing to have difficult conversations. The word speaks of confrontation. It has to do with going to someone who is headed in a wrong direction or who is sinning in some way, um, who, who is breaking the word of God, who is disturbing the peace of his church, who is um, harming their family, who is failing to obey the word of God, going to that person and lovingly confronting them and calling them to repentance. That's, that is just the most difficult work. People, people would 
would do anything in the world not to have those conversations. Isn't it true? I mean, as you know that you don't want to have those conversations, not even with your spouse, you don't want to have those conversations where you have to confront them. I mean, that is, that is a hard work. But as those who belong to the family of God, it is an obligation, and especially it is a characteristic of those who lead, that they are willing to confront sin and call people to repentance for the purpose of restoration, for the purpose of the glory of Christ, for the purpose of the edification of the body, right? And so those are the characteristics. When you see men like that, then you can recognize them. And let me just mention this, that when the church calls and commissions leaders, it's not that they choose somebody and they... They lay hands on them, and then they start working hard. And then they, they begin to take the lead, and then they start to uh, admonish people. That is not what this passage is saying. Rather, you look out among the flock, and as you see brothers who are involved in people's lives, who are, are lovingly uh, doing this work of, of, of shepherding and caring for the body, and they're hard working at it, and you notice that they, uh, that they take the lead, they are concerned for the glory of Christ, the headship of Christ, and, and they are individuals who are willing to get involved in the nitty-gritty and the bloody part of life. Because listen, there are marriage problems and there are financial problems and there are, are children problems, raising kids difficulties, there are neighbor problems, there are, there are problems of peacemaking and reconciliation, uh, there are offenses, and listen, sometimes the problems are so desperate and difficult, it takes months, it takes years of counsel and help. And you see those brothers that are willing to do those things, and then you, as a church, you say, wow, that brother should be an elder because God has chosen him. He should be a pastor because God has evidently gifted and called him to that work. Look at how he's doing the work. So you see them doing the work, and then you recognize the Holy Spirit is raising them up to be leaders in the church. So it's very important. Let me, let me try to go on. I had more to say about that, but those are the two sides. Now, the, the third question, uh, the third question deals with verses 14 and 15, which has to do with, with maintaining family life. Um, how... Does the church maintain, I'll just say body life? So you're not, the church is not just an organization. Uh, you, you know, you, you're not some social club. Um, you are a spiritual organization. And the relationships that you have are not ones that you can, can choose whether you have them or not. God has given them to you, and you are a steward of all the relationships in the body of Christ. You may not have a close relationship with every person in the church, but God has placed you in a circle of people that you have regular relationships. Now, you should reach out. You should definitely be building those. But it's evident that we're closer to some people. We know some people better than others. And you're to use those, those relationships. You are responsible to steward them for God's glory. 
And so then he tells us very specifically about how to steward them, and he mentions some very specific issues that arise. Because we live in this world, and, you know, it'd be nice if we were all wonderful and sweet, and if we all were filled with the Spirit all the time, and we showed the fruit of the Spirit, but that is simply not true. You know, I can go through the day, and at the end of the day, I feel just fine. But I've made these little remarks as I've gone through the day, and I've left behind me a trail of broken and hurting people. And it's not until perhaps someone says, you know, when you said this, it really hurt me. And I realized what I've done. And I, well, I certainly wasn't Christ-like in the way I talked about that. And I have to ask for forgiveness. I have to confess my sin. If a person didn't talk to me about it, I, I might not even know. But we have this responsibility. So he tells them here, he gives these, these key words He says, uh, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all, see that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. It's evident that we could talk much about these, but let me just, first of all, give you the commands. So he says, first of all, warn those who are unruly. So the word warn here is the very word that he used before is admonish. In other words, it's not just the elders and pastors who have responsibility to get involved in difficult situations. You you made witness, you heard this brother and the way that he talked to his wife. I mean, years ago, um, well, actually, not so long ago, there was a man who came and said, uh, listen, I, I, I just heard my brother say this to his wife, and I'm concerned about where he is spiritually. And you know, the, the elders said to him, they said, you need to go to that brother and tell him about your concern about how he's behaving toward his wife. And, of course, he had no idea. He thought for sure we were going to say, we got the ball, we'll take it from here. But that was not the way it was. No, he, he was to admonish, he was to uh, put in mind, he was to have that loving confrontation of this person. The word unruly actually is, a, is a, the word itself refers to soldiers who are out, out of step. They won't keep rank. And these are, are soldiers who are are perhaps not doing their duty. In fact, some have translated the word idle, and it's used uh, frequently in in the Greek world as as those who are idle. But here are individuals, they are not at their post. And let me say this, we have in our churches lots of people who are not at their post. And listen, in small churches, everybody needs to be at their post. Everybody needs to be using their gifts, serving in the role that God has given them. And there'll be different roles according to the measure of the gift that God has given you, according to the ability and opportunity that God has given you. But everybody needs to be at their post. And as Christians, we're to warn those who have abandoned their post, 
who for our, perhaps are resistant or are rebellion, rebelling against the leadership. They're not doing what was said before. Here God has given leaders, but they want to go another way. They have their own mind on this. They won't submit to the leaders that God has given. Now, if your leaders command you to do things that are outside or not according to the word of God, that's another matter altogether. But I dare say that is rarely the case. And many churches are rocked and harmed because of a resistance to leadership, because we have a rebellious and a resistant heart. Our hearts are rebellious. And so we we must learn to, to see the headship of Christ above our leaders and not be unruly and idle individuals. And as you and I help each other, then we have to warn one another. And then he says that we should comfort the faint-hearted because there are those who are discouraged, those who are weak-souled, small-souled individuals who, who perhaps because of the pressures and attacks, because of trials that have come in, their faith is, is waning and they're losing their courage to, to live and you need to give them some of your courage. You need to encourage them. And it may be through a note that you write to them, a letter that you write to them. It may be in a conversation that you have after church or a a breakfast or a lunch that you take them to and you build them up. It may be by your going and helping them and doing something for them practical. But you are to help those who are discouraged. It means to to latch on to them. Don't let them sink down in the water. The the word means to hold on to them. So, Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. There are those who are weak in the faith. I think that's the meaning here. Weak in the faith. They, They are struggling to trust and believe in God. They may be like those in Romans 14 who have a lot of convictions they, they have a lot of convictions, but, but they, they, haven't, they haven't grown enough in the way of Christ to, to uh, train their conscience to the Word of God. And so their conscience has been bound to culture. And so they, they make judgments about others and about themselves. They make judgments because, and so maybe they have some ideas about the Sabbath. And they treat Sunday as the Sabbath, and so... You know, they won't make a trip on the Sabbath or they don't do this on the Sabbath, this, you know. And so their their conscience, now listen, they, they have to listen to their conscience, but that's a weakness of faith. Romans 14 talks about that, or maybe they won't eat certain things. And so you help them, you're patient with them. In fact, that's, that's getting to the next one, right? So uh, uphold the weak, and I think that's the word uphold, is to, to grip and hold on, and be patient with all. You know, of all these commands, that's perhaps one of the most difficult ones, isn't it? To be long-suffering, to, to endure, to, to wait to respond in some strong way, you know, instead of getting loud, instead of getting tough, to, to speak softly, to walk slowly with another person, as you're helping them to move forward. And the object of be patient is all. Let's be patient with with all. We all require patience at time. And so let's exercise that kind of patience as well. 
And then he says, he gives us then the principle of reconciliation. We're to practice the principle of reconciliation. And church, this is so important. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. Oftentimes it is when offenses are made and offenses will come. You will be offended. You may be offended by leaders. You may be offended by your brothers or sisters. You may be offended by those in your own family. But do not render evil for evil. Don't react sinfully. Don't run away. Don't try to overwhelm them and destroy them because they've offended you. Instead, practice the principle of reconciliation. One, be willing to be wronged. Even if it means suffering for the sake of that other person, be willing to be Christ-like in the way that you respond. Uh, Relationships often involve suffering. We, We are hurt sometimes by other people. And so it not only requires that patience, but also that we not react in sinful ways to those offenses. But instead, we pursue what is good. And this is not the place for teaching the principles of reconciliation, but they must be practiced in order that there might be peacemaking in the church that is under the Prince of Peace. The Lord Jesus calls us, if you have an offense against your brother, go to your brother, show him the offense. If he acknowledges it, you've gained your brother if he confesses it. And and if you come to worship and you know that someone has an offense against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go to your brother and, and, and be reconciled to him. The Bible calls us, if we are those who have been partakers of the reconciliation in Christ to God, if we have been made friends with God, if peace has been made with God where there was great offense and the, and the distance between us and God has been covered by the death of our, Christ, our Savior, then we ought to be willing to go the distance also in order to bring our, the relationships around us together. And so these are the principles that he gives us here. So consequently, as the church waits for Christ's return, there will be pressures and tensions from trials and temptations. And in order to maintain the beauty and the glory of the church, the beauty and order of the church, we must follow the obligations of these relationships that God, this is how to steward the relationships that God has given to you. May the Lord prosper, Redeemer Church, in these ways. Amen.